0: For years, BreweryDB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery knowledge and responsible for mapping millions of visits to breweries all across the United States. In early 2021, BreweryDB revealed a whole new platform with all new features for craft lovers to plan their unique brewery experience. Find, filter, search, and route your way to breweries worldwide and in your own neighborhood. To take full advantage of the optimized power of BreweryDB and to increase your brew knowledge, visit BreweryDB.com, your digital destination for brewery experiences. Good Beer Matters shares the stories of craft and culture found in every glass, and I'm excited to announce that the Good Beer Matters podcast and BreweryDB are collaborating this year to help you get to the bottom of it. Visit us at brewerydb.com and goodbeermatters.net to finally have the experience you've been missing. My name is Jeremy, and this is Good Beer Matters.
1: It wasn't technically legal. I always thought to myself, well, if they bust me, that would be great. That would popularize the hobby even more. We wanted something different. We were seeking something different. Relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. Can't get any better than that.
0: Once upon a time in America, you could have any beer you wanted so long as it was pale yellow and mass produced. Then some revolutionaries challenged the status quo. My next guest led this charge and forever changed, not just a nation, but the world of beers we know it. I've studied, traveled, and tasted my way through some of the best beer the world has to offer. Over the past few years, I've also spoken to beer industry leaders from around the globe. And one thing is certain, the art, the science, and the culture of beer has more of a profound effect on us than we realize. There's a story of craft and culture found in every glass, and I intend to get to the bottom of it. These are the stories of us, of great food, and the beer that brings it all together. I hope you enjoy episode 83 of Good Beer Matters with the father of modern homebrewing, Charlie Papazian. So I am particularly excited about this episode you you know you're never supposed to say that you have favorite children or you know anything like that um but i have a feeling that this is quickly going to become one of my favorite interviews because my next guest has influenced anyone and everyone in the beer world um and uh and and frankly you know i mentioned to this uh, uh before we started rolling but um But honestly, uh, you are the reason why I got into the beer world, or it's your fault that I got into the beer world. Um, Charlie Papazian, thank you so much for coming on to the Good Beer Matters podcast.
1: Well, glad to be here and uh, look forward to the conversation and where it takes us. (laughs)
0: Um, So like I said, um, and I, I shared this with you before, but you are the reason uh, why I got into the beer world. I I didn't really care much or know much about beer until uh, someone gave me or stopped homebrewing, gave me their kit, and along came with it a book that would teach me what I needed to know to try brewing beer. And that was uh, your book, The Complete Complete Joy of Homebrewing, of course. Um, But, uh, you know, Anyone who's in the beer business probably has the same story. Anyone in the beer business, um, especially in the homebrewing world, likely knows your name. But uh, what I want to make sure everyone realizes who listen to this in the future is um, I, I've heard people call you the father of uh, modern homebrewing, um, uh, and I'm, I'm sure some other people uh, 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 names as well that, that are that are good. Um, but you also founded the Association of Brewers, which merged with the BA. You founded the American Home Brewers Association. Uh, you founded the Institute of, uh, for Brewing Studies, the Brewers Publication, the Great American Beer Festival, Zimmergy Magazine, the World Beer Cup. Um, and really, the first two questions I have for you, Charlie, is, uh, have I left anything out, and do you like beer? Uh,
1: uh, well, The last question is pretty, pretty easy to answer. Yes, I do love beer. I still, uh, I still make my, I still make my own when I enjoy it home. And, uh, did you leave anything out? Oh, uh, probably, but, uh, you know, we'll figure it out later. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Fair enough. Um, uh, uh, so, You know, I want to start out, usually I ask the guests to kind of uh, introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about your history, but uh, your Mm -hmm. history kind of speaks for itself. Um, uh, There are many things that we just take for granted in the beer world um, because of you, and and we'll flesh those out as we go along. Um, But uh, you know, I kind of want to start at the beginning, I want to tell a story. and and I want to start in the beginning of the '70s, and and you know I, I was born in the '70s, so there are certain things I remember. I remember um, you know uh, OP shorts that were really short. I remember Corvette Summer. I remember you know Star Wars coming out. Um, there were a lot of things to remember. I remember long lines at the gas stations and the and um, and the the Jimmy Carter era. But uh, will you describe? What it was like to be a beer drinker and and a an a illegal pirate homebrewer brewer uh, in the seventies.
1: Yeah, you mentioned a number of things that you remember in the seventies. That I was kind of recollecting. Uh, as you were talking, I was recollecting a few myself. And as far as the beer world was concerned, it was uh, <clears throat> pretty grim. And in, in a four-letter word, <laughs> it was pretty grim. Uh, if you wanted beer, you got light lager. And if you're lucky to find the the single door cooler in a liquor store, you might find Beck, St. Pauli Girls, Guinness, maybe a, one Mexican beer, maybe Bass Ale, Watney's. Uh, you know, there it was a handful of imports that were coming in, but and those we cherished for what they were. Um, but what was it what were the 70s like you know besides the fear there was a lot of other things going on uh, they deregulated the airlines which was huge because it really uh, provided a- more access to the public to travel and made it affordable and people started to travel and they went to Europe and they came back and they asked their friends you know why why can't we make the make better beer like they do in Europe because you know you go over there and you experience a different kind of beer and it was all a mystery it just tasted better to a lot of people and they came home and uh, there was no other option you couldn't buy the stuff in the store there was no other option but to figure out how to make beer and it was illegal back then up until 1978-79 uh, the process started and completed uh, to legalize home brewing on a federal level, but then there was a individual state level uh, legislation that had to be uh, passed in order to make it legal on the state basis. Um, but as home brewers, we were, uh, you know, the the knowledge base was pretty pretty slim. There was, I'd say, a couple of pamphlets that were out there that were written by Americans, one by Fred Eckhart from Oregon, Mm -hmm. and and one by Byron Birch, out of California. And then there was a slew of British homebrewing books, and the problem with that was they were— Written by Brits for Brits, and their beer culture was vastly different than what we were seeking. We were seeking as home brewers to make better beer right from the beginning. And uh, the whole homebrew culture in England was based on making the cheapest beer you could because beer was taxed so heavily. People were making homebrew to avoid paying, you know, a lot of money for beer. Um, so. Uh, the quality, some of the beer recipes from the British books were were okay, but uh, there was a lot of misinformation. A lot it, they weren't really made. The books really didn't have a, a a sound weren't based on a sound brewing knowledge or knowledge of brew beer and brewing. Um, so. Uh, we started uh, you know I was teaching beer making classes in the 70s and uh, that led eventually to towards the end of the 70s uh, it led to uh, me starting the American Home Brewers Association and uh, it was that network that we were we thrived on you know whether it was a local network of people the homebrew club or the just the knowing other homebrewers where we we were learning and we shared what we failed and we shared what we what we succeeded in and that's how we learned how to make beer in those days
0: well let me ask you there's a there's a couple different questions i want to ask you but again uh, let's start back in the beginning how did you learn to homebrew and and why did you become so interested in it
1: i learned from i was in college at the university of virginia and i uh i experienced um i was introduced to a, an old-timer who was making who had been making beer during prohibition and that's the style of beer he was making with prohibition style homebrew and it was pretty good and, int- and, and interest intrigued me um and I wanted to make my own as a college student. And uh, I got a, about a six-line homebrew recipe, and I was off and running and uh, did not succeed the first couple of times I made it. But I I sought whatever information there was out there, and I basically uh, found out about dextrose sugar rather than cane sugar. Um, beer yeast rather than bread yeast (laughs) and eventually uh, made dump and stir no boil malt extra hop flavored malt extract beers that were were drinkable and enjoyed by myself and uh, my college friends um, and roommates so that's how I got my start but when I when I when I really started learning how to homebrew is when I moved out to Colorado and I people found out that I knew how to make beer and they asked me to teach a beer making class. Mm. So I always say that I really learned the the, the good stuff, uh, the you know basic knowledge by teaching. Um, I I knew how to make beer and that was enough to be able to teach a beer making class. And in those classes, we made all kinds of things and experimented and learned together. And I was forced to uh, seek as much knowledge as I could in order to improve my teaching skills. And all along the way, people appreciated whatever we brewed because it was better and afforded less uh, good options other than the, the grim options of going to the store and buying light lagers. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, it's funny you say that the grim options, um, one of the other memories I have from uh, back then, uh, granted as a kid, but I remember, uh, I remember seeing, uh, in the, in the beer aisle, there was a can that just had a blue stripe around it. And it, all it said was beer. That was it. Um, and, 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 uh, sometime some uh, time ago, uh, I got to, uh, I got to have a conversation with, uh, Larry Sador, uh, up in, uh, Oregon. Um, he was the brewmaster at Deschutes and, and now, uh, owns his own brewery called Crux and he's a phenomenal brewer. Um, he's also, um, he, he's also been kind of like the, the center point of many, uh, brewing careers that have expanded out, uh, cause he's been brewing since the seventies. But, um, he told me in his time when he was brewing at Olympia, he uh, he had the occasion that he also had to brew that beer as well, and um, and we had a discussion about just the the absolute um, you know rock bottom point of American beer uh, really culminated in the seventies by uh, by uh, uh, all accounts, um, and then consequently the story you just shared, people would go finally go to Europe, discover beer, come back, want to figure out how to make it. That's a classic famous story. were there any other um, contributions to to people just getting tired of the of the generic beer at home and 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 wanting to seek something better what were, were there other um, reasons why people wanted to do that?
1: Well, you know culturally the people that were taking my class and that in that era, we all grew up in the era of homogenation, homogenization. Mm. You know, cultural homogenization. I mean, we grew up with Velveeta cheese, Wonder Bread. <laughs> you know, instant coffee. Uh, you name it. Um, and that in that kind of culture that we grew up, you know, that was embraced. You know, that was post post-World War II euphoria where everything was copacetic and and we were, you know, frozen TV dinners and, you know... We
0: we celebrated our scientific achievements with all that.
1: Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, And, you know, everybody was, you know, it was cool to be the same and eating the same and drinking the same. And that's, you know... People reveled in that, you know, Um, but we grew up and, you know, you call us, you know, back then they called us revolutionaries. I guess these days you'd be called a disruptor, (laughs) but um, we wanted something different. We were seeking something different in our lives and doing something creative and building things from scratch, that was that was cool to do. It was cool to be a loner and out there doing things that other people weren't doing. Um, I mean, everybody didn't accept that, obviously, but there were a lot of creative. There's a lot. There was a lot of creative thinking in those days. The the whole uh, educational system was turned on its head in those days because. Up until till the mid, well, early seventies, mid seventies, you know, there was no alternative education where people who had an interest in teaching what they knew didn't have access to be able to do that. Um, you know, the, there was a set curriculum people had, and any community schools or city uh, uh, educate continuing education programs. They were all curriculum and and, and set in stone. Art um, classes, brewing beers, uh, bicycle mechanics, uh, you know, yoga, uh, how to grow your own garden. Uh, those kinds of things weren't weren't freely taught. But there was a revolution. They, they call it the free school movement. It started in Berkeley. It started in Boulder, Colorado in Michigan, I think University of Michigan, Kalamazoo. I mean there were three or four places where there were there were hubs and that idea really quickly grew. So that was kind of part of the flavor of that era where people really wanted to explore their their abilities and, and uh interests uh, that were not necessarily the curriculum of society that society was locked into at the time
0: and And so then here you are with your with your your band of brewing pirates, you know going against you know the the cultural grain, so to speak. Um, and you started brewing. you started teaching. But how did you find the ingredients to do all this? I mean, I, I've heard stories from other people where they they would find uh brown hops in some uh, in a woolworth somewhere or grab just you know baking yeast and hope for the best i mean what was the reality of trying to find stuff to brew with
1: well like i said it was it wasn't technically legal um i always thought to myself well if they bust me that would be great (laughs) you know we would that would popularize the hobby even more um where did we get our ingredients? We went to the home winemaking shops, and because they were a business, there they had a you know they had hesitancy to promote that they were selling homebrew beer ingredients, but they did sell them, but they didn't promote it. Mm. Um, so we could find some basic ingredients, you know, a lot of malt extracts flavored with hops and not flavored. Uh, most of all the stuff came over from the U.K. Um, <clears throat> there were, well, they call them hops, but <laughs> they look more like brown, you know, autumn leaves <laughs> compacted into into little bricks. I mean, that's the first time I ever saw hops. I said, hmm, this is cool. I never saw green hops for years to come. Mm. Um, and they had the hydrometers and the, you know, grain, they had pale malt and they had crystal malt and they had roasted barley and black malt. Um, that was about it. Um, and there wasn't a whole bunch, there wasn't a whole lot of all grain brewing at those days. Um, there was a major paradigm shift when, when one of the home brewers of the year brewed a batch of beer American Home Brewers Association and he won best of show with an all grain beer and that really just turned everything upside down people said whoa we can make better beer and we can do it ourselves from scratch and everybody was really began to seek knowledge on how to do that um, but uh, that's where we got our ingredients and uh, people were talking beer you know I was I just uh it's a little add on to the previous conversation we had you know what was it like uh I taught the class in my home that that I lived in with some roommates and uh the class would come and you know it was unusually unusual thinking at the time but there was I'd say 50 the class was 50 percent women 50 percent men pretty much on a con- on a consistent basis and we sit down on the floor and i talk about ingredients and uh, beer culture and technical stuff. And then we brew a batch of beer every class. Um, and word got around that, you know, uh, Charlie was given this beer making class and it was pretty interesting. You ought to drop by. And I had importers and distributors and retailers in the area, Denver, Boulder area that uh, asked if they could drop by and, hang out and see what was going on and they did and their comments to me were they were that they were flabbergasted they they were astounded they first of all there were women in class that were interested in beer talking about beer but the thing is they'd never seen a group of people actually talking about beer and we weren't talking about beer styles in those days because that was just getting that whole concept was getting developed. But we were talking about tastes and ingredients and how to make it and getting excited about it, talking about some of our experiences in Europe. And these importers and, you know, these beer industry people were just astounded that people wanted to talk about beer and beer making and beer culture and the flavors of beer and what you could do. And it was you know, they they never seen that in their lives and in, and and their and their careers before.
0: And so, I I guess I assume that um, with the existing breweries back then, and I, I guess I'm thinking about you know probably Coors, Anheuser Busch, Landon Kugel, Yingling, you know, where wherever they were, these kind of larger regional, um, national breweries were were brewery tours a thing. I mean. Uh, were there, was there enough interest in what beer was and to, for people to actually go and see how it was made? I've got a question for you. How are you engaging with your customers? Are you adding value or just vying for attention? If you have a business, then you are an authority and should be regarded as a partner in everyone's mutual success. But getting that message across in the first place, that's the trick. At Mountain Sea Media, I use education and storytelling to keep your brand on top of mind. So if you're done with ineffective marketing and want to create more impact, I want Mountain Sea Media to be your resource for high-value branded content. Contact me at jeremy at to explore the possibilities. After all, it's your story. I'll help you tell it.
1: Yeah, I recall that you know Coors and and Alexander Bush. You know, when I finally got, took the tours, it seemed like they were they had been doing those tours all the time because people would visit the factories and and uh, take the tour, have a beer, go to the gift shop, buy stuff. Um, so they were around. Uh, I don't know if the regionals were doing that, but they had tap rooms too. So I'm you know people. On a casual basis, uh, they were more interested in getting a little free beer and buying a T-shirt than really and, – and some rudimentary information and knowledge about how it was made. Uh, so, yeah, and, you know, speaking of the big brewers, there were – you know, they uh, – there were quite a few people in the business that were were – not exactly positive about homebrewing, mm. like the marketing, marketing people and the, you know, higher ups, but I, to their credit, you know, there were brewmasters, some brew, many brewmasters and brewers. And even this, you know, even the, the leading figures at Coors Brewing and, and even anheuser Bush. So there were those there by, at least by the early eighties that, were really beginning to respect that here were people, home brewers that genuinely honored and appreciated the culture of beer and were seeking the the best information that they could find on how to make beer. So there was a certain respect and there was a lot of there was significant help and information Information that was provided, technical stuff and brewing, and sometimes ingredients that the the big brewers would provide home brewers in order to for us to improve our techniques and improve our our beers.
0: Well, and it seems to me that they did a very good job of of making it seem like this is a a big beer only, and you know this, the, you know, kind of the, you know, they had they had. There was a wizard behind the curtain when it came to beer, at least from my point of view uh, back then. And maybe it was a marketing team, or maybe it was just the way that the whole culture was set up. but i I remember being in college going up to you know the the store that had all the great wine and and liquor and everything. and and um I remember walking by and seeing a box that said something like a homebrew kit. And I remember at at that point in my time thinking, "Oh wow, you can brew beer at home." And then I walked right on pie, uh, and then that was that was kind of my my uh, brush with destiny that I that I failed to take advantage of um, until years later. But I I just remember thinking, oh, I a beer is made at these big factories. You you can't you can't do that at home. And um, and and I think if if it's true, I think that was a general mindset that you know. You know, beer comes from big factories. Milk comes from, you know, big factories or, you know, cheese comes from manufacturers. You can't make cheese at home. You can't make beer at home. Um, What shifted?
1: Yeah, well, that's what I was talking about earlier. You know, the the factories were, the beer factories were, were (laughs) Oz. You know, like you said. Um, It was, and it was cool and it was respected and it was like, no problem. We'll do what everybody else, we'll drink what everybody else is doing. Um, what happened was that because of who we were as home brewers, and this had a triple effect to eventually include craft brewers even today, um, our knowledge had to come from somewhere other than books because the books didn't exist. They literally did not exist, really. For to, uh, so we had to we had to network. You know, the original social network was over a beer. Even centuries ago, it was in the pub. Um, and as far as home brewing, it was over a beer, and it was over the telephone line. And but it, you know, we were pioneers in figuring out how to communicate and network and and grow our knowledge of beer making, and that persists even today that's our culture. But the culture of Oz was, and in some parts of the world it still is, is that, oh, we can't talk about how we make beer that are trade secrets. And, you know, you go to a craft brewer and they invite, uh, craft brewers invite other craft brewers to come in and they bear their whole brewery and process and they learn from each other Um, and they make better beer because you know they really realize that you know beer making is not a recipe it's not a book it's not set in stone it's infused with your personality your situation your environment and by environment I mean I mean Speaking holistically, I mean the whole and your whole environment, whether you, where you live, your water, your your culture, your education, your uh, you, the the beer awareness of your your town, your city, your area, um, and you make beer not only accordingly, but your beer is influenced by all those factors. And it's not just the recipe, you know, if you had the recipe and the technique on how to make a beer you've had in Belgium or in Omaha, Nebraska, and you saw how it was made, and you had the water analyzed, and you had, you know, the recipe and the processes and the temperatures and the all the fermentation details, and you went to... Sarasota, Florida, and try to make that beer. It would you'd have it would be a, a, a real challenge. You probably if you were passionate about what you're doing, you'd probably succeed. But it would take a hell of a lot of effort, and a lot of knowledge, and a lot of education on your part to figure out how to adjust your brewing process. Knowing your environment that you're in to make a beer that you're trying to replicate.
0: And so, speaking of that of that brewing knowledge, um, I, I kind of want to transition to uh, when you first wrote *The Complete Joy of Homebrewing*. Um well tell us about that process. I mean who who was that uh, book originally for? Obviously for new homebrewers, but w- what was the what was the real purpose to to get that book out there?
1: Well, the first two editions of that book I self published. It was like seventy, eighty, ninety page book that I had typewritten on a IBM Selectric typewriter and I took it to the printer and I had it published, printed. Um, and then in 1983, 82, I guess 82, uh, the idea of a big volume book was successfully sold to, uh, Avon books or which is now Harper in New York city. And, they somehow, I don't know how they, <laughs> how they said why they said yes, but they said yes, um, do it, and I got an advance, and uh, which was something I wasn't familiar with, but it was a pretty good chunk of change, and I all, all of a sudden had this responsibility to to make the complete joy or the complete joy of home brewing. Um, and I set aside an entire summer of doing, I, hardly, I didn't see any friends that, that summer, and I researched. I talked to a lot of professional brewers. I also visited England and saw how they made beer, uh, real ale, and there are other types of ales, and it was so different than what was had been written in the British home brewing books. Um and I started realizing that I had to really turn to the professionals and learn as much as I could from them, whether they were making lager at Coors Brewing or making real ale in uh in London. Uh and with my background, uh, you know, I went to school. I got a degree in engineering, so I took a lot of science and math, and you know, all that kind of stuff. So I kind of understood the industrial process, so to speak, and the factors that that are 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 that you have to deal with when you're making larger batches. And so I my task was to learn the technical process of brewing, and I and I had some books too that were recommended to me and I read them. Um, my task was to translate all that information into words that the general public who was interested in making beer would understand and translate the technology down from a hundred barrels or a thousand barrels of beer at a time to five gallon batches. Um, and, uh, I was good at that. And the other aspect of what I infused into the book and I, I which which was really more important than anything else was that homebrewing was fun. You know, that whole relax, don't worry, have a homebrew, <clears throat> which really bugged a few people. They didn't like that at all. But most people, almost you know, ninety plus percent of the people who ever read my books really appreciated that. And I found that it was a whole culture that trickled into other parts of their lives other than brewing. Um, That's the feedback I got from a lot of people. that, That whole attitude about approaching something that you've never done before and overcoming the anxieties you have when you try something new and different. You know, whether you're in fifth grade, going into middle school for the first time, or you're a home brewer making a batch of beer in your your kitchen for the first time, it's that anxiety of doing something you've never done before, and wondering whether you're going to be whether you can not only whether you're going to succeed or fail, but whether you're going to be made fun of or whether you're going to be embarrassed. Um, you know whether you're going to be worthy <laughs> of the effort. Uh, and that I was really aware of that because I taught classes for ten years, and overcoming that anxiety was well, it is one of the biggest hurdles of introducing successfully introducing the idea of home brewing to people, um, men or women, and that was infused um you know and right alongside of all that kind of you know relax don't worry have a homebrew was good sound scientific knowledge about the process in terms that were readable and sometimes humorous um don't take life too seriously but take it serious enough to do be able to do the best you can um so that was, you know, that was the the, the impetus behind writing that that book, um, and it has evolved into four different editions, which I've updated every basically every ten years. Um, and uh, I was just figuring out the other day, 1.4 million copies of that book would probably cover the floor. Of a five hundred square foot building. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's and I know what that looks like. Go, wow, that's a lot of books. Um, and how many people actually use the book? Well, there's a lot of used books out there that I sign. So you know, for every book that's out there, there's probably two or three times as many people that have used that book.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I I got my book secondhand, um, and I I read through. Uh, you know the first sections were all about how to brew and then and then the and um, you had a bunch of different recipes, but I read through that uh, that learning section several times uh, highlighted underlined dog-eared to go back to and i I was very uh, my my training, my personality is um, you know I, I can get very technical when I need to be, but I, I get kind of bored when we start talking about, amylases and 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 a bunch of numbers and everything is just it, i i prefer the stories of it and what i really loved about that is you introduced the the science the chemistry but in a very artful story-driven way for the most part and and it um after going through that a couple times i, I felt like i got a good handle on uh at least opening the door to understanding the intricacies of of brewing and and so I I appreciated your approach to um, to kind of speak to everyone, both the engineers and the storytellers alike. It was I thought it was it was exactly what I needed.
1: Yeah, well you know that story. the stories are as much a part of beer brewing as you know, the technical the technical stuff. It's an, it's not only inspirational, but it's uh it's the basis of why we brew and make beer. I mean when you know the reasons why a beer was made and uh, a style evolved, you get a little bit more, uh, I don't know, excited. Uh, you know, you just get more passionate about it. You're doing something that people and historically have done, and now you're part of history.
0: You know, I'm, I'm glad you said that. I, I absolutely believe that wholeheartedly, and I preach and I teach that. Um, after understanding the brewing process, dive, then when you dive into styles, when you dive into cultures, and when you kind of understand why Munich beers are the way they are, and and uh, why British, um, you know, London beers are the way they are, versus you know the Burton uh, IPAs and pales, and why and why American loggers are the way they are, when when you understand the brewing process and understanding the story of of how people just solved the problems so that they could just have a beer, and how that came out to become a, a very distinct style, to me, that's fascinating and and also, um, when you know that story, you're you're not likely to forget the beer and what the beer is like.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah, it's uh, you know it's just like you travel or even at home and you get to know. Where your ingredients actually came from, and the people who grew your ingredients, and and you eat, you know, whether it's food or beer or other beverages, you just it it matters more when you're, and it, it just makes things more enjoyable, and, and, and you're more appreciative of what's in front of you. Yeah, as you consume it. You know, instant coffee, at a, or homogenized milk, or Wonder Bread. I mean, in those days, it came from the factory, and everybody appreciated that. <laughs> but things change. I mean, there was a revolution in, in our culture in the 60s and 70s. It really, one generation to another, that hadn't experienced a World War, um, and we wanted something different, and we were seeking something different, and. It's led to all of what we have in terms of beer. You know, I look at the history of, of how beer has evolved, craft beer, homebrewing has evolved. And, you know, in my way of thinking, how that how beer and homebrewing and craft beer evolved is a template for us, how so many other things in our society today have evolved, whether it's yogurt or ice cream, or coffee, or farm the table food, depreciation, organic, natural, you know, all those things, uh, that whole template is just being replicated. It's, you know, people have ideas on, on something that represents better quality and improving one's life quality, and... You know the first thing that you need to do is arm yourself with knowledge, and then the other thing, and the only knowledge out there is pretty much a network of like like individuals, and then you have to educate the public and have them understand the value uh, driven end of what you're doing, and and of course you know there's it's. It's partly about money, too, and if people are going to spend more money on a hobby or spend more money on something they're going to consume, they have to recognize they're spending more money on something that they perceive as having more value. So that whole whole educational process of teaching people to recognize the value of better quality is a is a hard road to go down. <laughs> it's a slow one, too, and it's not, um, it's not marketing. I'm not talking about marketing. Um, I'm talking about really um, educating people fundamentally, lifestyle changes and lifestyle thinking and cultural thinking that goes far beyond just marketing a product. It's uh, instilling an idea and the value you put on things and, and knowing where that value comes from.
0: Well, and it seems like we could apply that same concept that you just eloquently laid out for us uh, about beer. We could apply that same mindset to how we treat people who look nothing like us.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right it's not marketing it's not uh, advertising it's not being inundated every day with the same stories it's it's education and it's real life involvement by individuals to make those changes
0: and and hopefully we can make those changes uh, with the beer in her hand that's that Hopefully, my my contribution to the world is, is uh let's do better. Here's a beer. Well,
1: I've seen, I've seen it. We've seen it work. I'm sure you've seen it work, and it's uh, a successful approach on many things. Not everything, but it it it, it uh, it's a template that can be translated into. Uh, you know, whether it's uh, over a beer or over a good cup of coffee. Or over something else that you have created um, that is value-driven, you know, higher, higher value-driven um, and shared. I mean, that's the whole thing, you know, sharing experiences with across the aisle, so to speak.
0: Yeah. Um. And and so we we kind of launched into something a little bit more philosophical, um, and and and. and so I want to keep going with that, but after writing this book and putting it back out there, what happened to your career and the world as we know it as a result of putting that book out there?
1: Well, good question. I like that question because it leads me to something that I always remind people that when you are a disruptor, a revolutionary, there are a lot of people that want to crush you. Um, that don't think, and that won't think very highly of you. When I put that book out there, um, and it's, it baffled me at the time, most homebrew book, homebrew shops, winemaking shops, would not carry my book. And the reason why was they had this idea that homebrewers were cheapskates, <laughs> and that and that the books that were available were usually two and a half to three and a half dollars at the most. And my book was retailing for seven and a half. And they didn't want to sell that kind of book. I, I, you know, I a loosely high-priced book to their customers. So what happened was that it became a really good seller in bookstores uh, across the country. And people were coming into the homebrew shop with my book, and say, I want to make this recipe. (laughs) (laughs) And after a couple of years, the homebrew shops got it. You know, they understood that, you know, homebrewers, you know, it's easy to say that homebrewers are cheapskates. You know, they're making beer to save money. That was not the fundamental reason we were making beer. That was the reason why the Brits were making beer, or the Canadians were making beer, Um, but not Americans. And they figured it out, and once that happened, they began selling the books, and it became—it really took the books just skyrocketed sales. I mean, geez Louise, I mean, you know, a couple hundred thousand books, and you know, each year for a number of years back in those days, Um, and the hobby really took off. It still didn't gain. Enough momentum to become like uh, mainstream. Um, we were still far from it, but as far as the book was really helped popularize and create an attitude whereby homebrewers not only began were didn't felt intimidated by the whole idea about homebrewing, but they stuck with it too. There are a lot of books out there that are technically terrific books. And um, I think that a lot of people that start out with, with those alternate books, um, they make great beer, but they have missed out on the fundamental premise that homebrewing is fun and a hobby and enjoyable and there's a culture behind it. Um, and those people don't stick with the hobby as much as people who have kind of started out with my book. That's, that's my, my theory.
0: Well, I know those books. I have those books. I've also, uh, dog-eared and highlighted and underlined those books as well, but I, I think you're right. Um, I would never have read those books if I were just starting to learn how to brew because I, it was just, it, it would have intimidated me. Your book, um, cultivated me, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, I I, I remember one of the f- covers of our magazine, Dimergy, the magazine for the Ho- American Homebrewers Association. It was, we featured homebrew bloopers, which, in effect, we were sharing our failures on the cover of the magazine. <laughs> it was a cover story. <laughs> and that was that was very telling. As I look back, that we were not only sharing our successes and our winning recipes, we were sharing our failures. We laughed at ourselves, and you know, through failures, you, you know, you often hear. I mean, it's clear. You know, you got to fail to learn. I mean, a failure is a learning experience, and. It's not necessarily a negative thing, and and we were doing. I mean, how many hobbies (laughs) or how many publications that champion a hobby or an idea would would make fun of themselves on the cover of the magazine? I I mean, I look back at that and say, man, we had we were uh, out of touch with what everyone else (laughs) we were supposed to be doing, but. We succeeded well, in our I, own
0: way. I, I can think of only one other publication that would probably do that, and that would be Mad Magazine.
1: Yeah, Mad Magazine, <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> so, um, Charlie, with the, with the entirety of your career, what are you most proud of?
1: Well, some of the things that we've talked about, Um, There are many things, but, you know, the whole culture of cooperation, collaboration, teaching others, and developing uh, respect for beer. Um, And one of the things that, one of the projects that I really, Enjoyed doing my final couple of years, two or three years at the at the Brewers Association before I I left after 40 years. Um, I had the privilege and opportunity with this project that I developed. I videotaped and interviewed for one hour, 145 of the pioneers of craft brewing. Mm. Many of whom were originally home brewers. But, um, and that was kind of the cap of my career. And as I look back at it, I realized that I'd known most of these people for 20 or 30 years, some even 35, 40 years. And um, I was interviewing them and talking to them for an hour. And it was the first time for almost every almost every one of them um, that I was able to speak, hang out with them for an hour to talk about stuff, about their careers and their passion and their failures and their emotions and their issues and their history and why they did the things they did and what they were pursuing, what they were running away from. Um, you know, on a level that not just... The, these interviews were not about <clears throat> how did you do your business, how do you start your business, and how do you make beer, but it was about why did you do the, the things you did and what happened to you in your life that really uh, moved you in one direction or another, and what were the circumstantial things that happened that were memorable. Um, and I realized that that those stories... That history, if if somehow someday that could be made accessible, people if people realize that they're not alone when they start a business, that people have gone through many of the same kind of issues that uh, people who start a business today are going to go through or have gone through, and that. They would realize that their dreams are are much more achievable um, despite the challenges and difficulties um, that you're not alone out there and uh, you don't have to make the same mistakes and you can feed off the the energy and the knowledge and the Experiences of those who have not done what you're going to do, but have gone through the process of going going through the process of what you're about to be doing as a, as a new brewer or as an existing brewer. Um, one thing that I think of, you know, as we come out of this pandemic... Uh, and how quickly craft brewers had to adapt. That's been a a, a person that, you know, that's been a a trait of craft brewers ever since the beginning, being able to adapt. You know, when the pandemic started and there was a lot of negativism and pessimism, of course there was a of course there was a lot of unknown. Things that we didn't know about either, which kind of was uh, drove drove anxiety. But there was a, there was a lot of pessimism about what was going to happen to the craft beer business and craft brewing business. And I didn't feel that way. I felt that I I knew from talking to people for over 40 years of these interviews that I did the last three years, those kinds of challenges, you know, the pandemic challenge is one of many challenges that craft brewers have had to go go through. Um, When I think of, you know, this dark cloud of the pandemic, I think of the dark cloud of the beer culture back in the seventies. You can imagine starting a business in the, 80, early 80s and you, your idea is to make beer and everybody around you every sensible business person every financial institution is telling you that you're absolutely crazy you're going to fail this is a passing phase you're a you're, you're a sick revolutionary person you're, you're going to fail and <clears throat> The beer environment in those days was nobody wanted to sell your beer. Nobody wanted to distribute your beer. Um, And the beer drinker didn't know anything about your beer. You know, hops, what were hops? Malt, what was malt? What is this flavor? This isn't beer. Um, Those challenges were far, far more insurmountable. or seems far so more sur- surmountable than the known issues of the pandemic that we went through. Um, so, I, I, you know, I think that that's the nature of, of what you have to be and are as a successful craft brewer. If you're getting in it just for the money and you think you're going to make a business and you're going to make a bunch of money and all you've got to do is buy the right equipment and hire the right people, I've seen cycles of that kind of stuff before me and in the past and they fail. They fail. That you know, they 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 don't succeed the way craft authentic craft brewers succeed today and in the past.
0: Well, I, I've got a few more questions for you, but we're running short on time. Are you okay for a few more? Yeah, sure. Because I am mm-hmm. utterly fascinated by all of this, and I and I trust uh, my listeners are too. Um, but, uh, you know, kind of given all this context, again, that you laid out for us, um, what has surprised you the most as far as where – where you helped us start and where we are now as, a, as an industry, what surprises you the most?
1: Hmm. Ooh, that's a huge question. <laughs> um, what surprises me most? Do you Just repeat that again so it sinks in. Sure. That's...
0: I mean, just, just kind of analyzing where the beer industry is now, what surprises you the most about where, where we are?
1: Um where the beer, the craft beer business is now, <clears throat> I guess what surprises me the most is sometimes the emerging, a little bit it is just emerging the emerging pessimism about what the craft beer culture has evolved to. You know, during the evolution, the whole thing about beer styles, for example, the whole thing about beer styles was celebrated and and uh, developed and created and enjoyed by the beer drink and the diversity was was really celebrated. And I see now that <laughs> to put it into my own words, my own my own <clears throat> way of thinking, when I started home brewing, I brewed beer because I couldn't find what I wanted to drink. And then, here we are in 2021, and I tell myself, I'm brewing homebrew because I can't find the beers I want to drink. (laughs) (laughs) You know, all those taps of German-style beers and Belgian-style beers and English-style beers and American-creative beers have all been taken by 20 different IPAs. Um, or, and seltzer or whatever. And the diversity aspect is kind of, it surprises me that we're going kind of backwards. And well, I think, did, that,
0: did you ever you know, imagine a world where uh, a milkshake IPAs and pastry stouts would exist?
1: Well, kind of, but it doesn't need to be that kind of. Flippant. I mean, <laughs> if that's the right word. Um, you know, those are flippant styles of beer that they're fun, and that, that fun should be respected. But at at what cost? If it costs like not being able to provide access to the diversity that we had, let's say, ten years ago, that to me is is not going in the right direction. Um, you know, there are, uh, I'm encountering more, everybody, you know, every conversation I've had with, whether people are my friends and they're, they're passionate beer drinkers or they're just casual beer drinkers, they, the, some of the most uh, common comments that I consistently hear, and these people don't know each other, or yeah, I, I'm all over. I'm done with the hops thing, man. I'm tired of, of this hop IPA thing. I, you know, I want I want a good British pub pub beer, or uh, you know, I want a pale ale again. I want a you know a a wheat ale. I, I, I want a a good German lager or something. You know, it's it's uh, people are are missing the choices that they had, I guess the message is that people are beginning beer drinkers, the beer drinkers that have been cultivated over all these years are beginning to miss uh, the beers that they grown up with. Hmm. And yes, there's money to be made and uh, with these different, with 10 different kind of hazy IPAs on tap and, um perhaps seltzer and maybe that's a business model that people can successfully pursue but it's not necessarily uh the foundation for what the craft beer business and the craft brewing business uh, has been founded on and so those you know, when you emphasize those things, those businesses are drifting in another direction, and are not the core craft brewing businesses that uh, are the culture of where we where we came from. With all this,
0: well, I I find that um, I find that a little bit surprising, and and frankly, I agree with you. Um, I, I'm, I, I guess I'm old enough where um, I, I, I think of going back to the styles as a sign of maturity, and, and I've, I've tasted every beer style. I've had some milkshake IPAs and pastry stouts, and they're fun, but, but I just brewed a Munich Hellas because that's what I want to drink on a daily basis. But then again, yeah. but, but to turn that on its head, back in the 70s, you guys were challenging the norm, you guys were pushing the boundaries of what beer was, um, and and going against all that. And to me, that's what these, um, the, the the flippant milkshake IPAs and pastry stouts are doing to our sense of normalcy in the beer industry today. And and I'm grateful, personally, I'm grateful that there are people doing that because it may lead to the next thing that becomes the next great beer. Um, but I but. But at the same time, I also agree with you is I don't want to lose track of those styles that got us here because those are the ones that that will hold the line well, while, while the rest of you go and have these fun little day trip beers before you come back to the to the classics
1: yeah, I think there's a, 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 a you know a better equilibrium that could be reached <laughs> uh, i respect I respect those beers too uh, i'm I'm with you Uh that's part of pushing the boundaries in the extreme beer. Every time people make an extreme beer, there are, there's some negativism out there. And I don't want to come off as being negative about what's going on out there. Uh, but just remember your past, remember your history and remember that there are millions of beer drinkers out there that grew up on the diversity of other beers that have, uh, have disappeared from uh, the choices we have now, um, you know. And I've never, I've never experienced that until just recently, where I can go into a tap room or a brewery, and there's sometimes there's not much that I really get excited about as far as what they have on tap, <laughs> I, and that that's new. That's new to me. Um I don't want to say I don't want to say I'm getting older and stuff No go in and say way. it. I'm
0: I'm with you. I am I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm not the same age as you, but I'm also getting older and so I I'll, I'll walk into a place and see all these uh, creative hazy whatever beer styles and and I see a Kolsch i just like I'll have a Kolsch. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: and you know there's there's a lot of stuff in the beer news now that uh, the the beer community, the beer industry is losing share of alcohol Mm -hmm. to wine and distilled spirits less people are drinking beer um and i got a question uh you know why it's not because the winemakers i don't think because winemakers distilled spirits are marketing better i think that they may be offering more choices uh, that appeals to people that, um, and maybe craft brewers, maybe you know, it's just something to think about. I'm not, I'm not going to say this is the way it is, but maybe craft beers are, are reducing the uh, the choices that they put on tap for beer drinkers hmm. and they're, they're doing something else. I mean, it's first, especially if they're doing seltzer because seltzer isn't, is, alcoholics hard seltzer is not beer um so you you're yeah, there you go
0: yeah I'll leave it
1: I'll leave it at that okay <laughs> we'll, we'll let that. Listen, listening can have their own uh ideas of you know why why thing, why are things why is there less choices out there and uh well maybe there are yeah. maybe Charlie you're you're wrong there are more choices it's just that you don't like pastry stouts and the six hazy ipas that
0: are on <laughs> well um and, and you know and frankly i agree with you you know i, I do enjoy whiskey but i don't need cinnamon flavored whiskey i don't want apple if i want it i'll make it myself that's the fun part but um but that that could be an entirely different podcast topic so i will uh, move on to our closing <laughs> questions and, and 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 and, and to be sensitive of your time, these can be as long or short as you choose. Um, but uh, you have been—this uh, th- should not be far from home here. But because you have been a beer industry leader for decades, um, but the question is, if you could be the absolute reigning beer king or king of the beer world for one day, what would you change first?
1: Ooh. What would I change? Well, I would change something that, and because the world doesn't work in a way that you can make one make one wish <laughs> or make make one change, and it changes everything. Um, I would hope for making better beer more accessible to more people, and whether that's lowering taxes or figuring out better regulations or busting monopolies or whatever. Um, that would be it. Is you know, doing if I could change one thing, I would want to make beer more better beer more accessible and diversity and a variety of beer more accessible to more people.
0: I, I like that. I, In fact, as you described that, I imagined uh, uh, creating a brewing branch of the Peace Corps to uh, go out and, <laughs> and bring quality <laughs> beer wherever that it's needed the most. Um, okay, so tomorrow, Charlie, you and I are going to get on a rocket and fly to Mars to set up the very first brewery uh, on that planet. But today, you get to choose your very last meal and your very last beer on Earth. What are they going to be?
1: Well, Well, the uh, meal would probably be a hot, spicy Thai curry that my wife makes that is really fantastic. And the beer would probably be one of my home brews, which is a hybrid uh, between... As near as I can tell, it's a hybrid between a German Hellas, a German Pilsner, and a Czech Pilsner. It's and that's been dry hop with some special hops that give the beer a really delicious flavor. <laughs> so you know, it's it's dry a dry hop hybrid uh, lager. That's about five and a half percent. Very drinkable, so I could drink a bunch, but it has a lot of personality. So I'm still making beer, and uh, a lot of the beers I make I can't uh, aren't made elsewhere because I do so many funky different things with tweaking the, the boundaries of what styles are are out there. I
0: love it. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to your answer on this. Why does good beer matter?
1: Why does good beer matter? Well, because it has a history and a culture of mattering to so many hundreds of millions of people. And for the most part, culturally, it does good for society. Um... It's an incubator for creativity, friendship, and understanding each other. So that's why it matters.
0: Uh, anyone who's listening to this podcast, if they wanted to find out more about what you're up to or find your book or, uh, you know, connect and or plug into the homebrewing community that you've created in some fashion, where can people go?
1: Well, <clears throat> Connect with my book, you can go to any bookstore or online, find my book, Complete Joy of Home Brewing. I really <clears throat> and if you're really into the advanced aspect, uh book that doesn't sell as many much, but is just as important as the Complete Joy of Home Brewing is the Home Brewers, <clears throat> the Home Brewers Companion, which is kind of a second volume of inform- of different new information um than the Complete Joy. And also if you want to travel with me on my adventures, the micro adventures, is kind of a history of the pioneers um, through my experiences with them and the beers I've had with them. So um, if you want to join me, uh, read that book. Um, and then uh, connecting with me on social networks, I do have a <clears throat> Facebook fan page. I have Instagram account and a Twitter account. Charlie, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm drinking as much water and not enough beer, I guess. <laughs> uh, I think it's Charlie Papazian. Some aspect of my name is both on my, uh, Instagram and my Twitter account. So you can follow it. I'm always looking for eccentric beer news to tweet. Um, that's what I do. I don't have a web page yet, but one of these days when after I get through this buffering period after um having worked and had deadlines and the stress <laughs> and the enjoyment of forty years of of being uh involved with the Brewers Association and going through a buffered period and then I'll probably dive back into some of my old old habits again of writing and uh Maybe have a web page. But right now I'm enjoying uh, taking care of myself, family, brewing beer, visiting breweries, and uh, smiling as much as I can.
0: That's wonderful. Um, Do you have any final advice uh, or calls to action for anyone listening?
1: Well, my standard line is relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. Can't get any better than that.
0: I I was hoping you would have signed off with that. That's perfect. Thank you so much. And 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 Charlie, you know, I I I was not kidding when I told you that uh, you know it's your fault that I got into the beer business. and it's been wonderful ever since. Thank you for inspiring me. Thank you for inspiring generations of beer leaders, and beer drinkers, and home brewers around the globe. Um, your impact um, and legacy are are phenomenal and and, um, I I can't wait to see what happens in the future. But thank you for coming on to the Good Beer Matters podcast.
1: Well, thanks, Jeremy, for having me. enjoyed it.
0: Building the craft beer industry took a lot of work from a lot of people, but Charlie Papazian would have to be among the biggest contributors. So if I could speak on behalf of home brewers and the beer industry, I would say thank you, Charlie, for inspiring all of us beer lovers around the world. We hope you're relaxing and enjoying a homebrew. In the next episode, we visit with the homebrew educator who teaches us how and why we should brew at home. Good Beer Matters is a show about great beer, great friends, and the experiences we create together. But it's also about better beer education so you can level up your game. So if you're a beer and food professional or even a beer enthusiast, then please subscribe to Good Beer Matters podcast and go to goodbeermatters.net for more resources and next steps. After that, grab a beer, hang out with friends, and let the world open up. Thank you for listening. Cheers.